Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. And welcome to Local Zero. This is episode five. Leading up to COP26, when it lands in Glasgow this coming November, we're going to be spending this year focusing on Earth's most urgent question. And that is, what can we all do very practically about climate change? Today's episode, very simply, is an in-depth chat with Chris Stark, the Chief Executive of the UK's Climate Change Committee. We're going to get his thoughts on the year ahead, preparations for COP26, and progress towards the UK's net zero target for 2050. With us as always, and keeping us on track, is our producer, Fraser Stewart. So Fraser, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. It's good to be back. Very Happy New Year to you both. Have you had a good break? Yeah, it was, it was nice to have a holiday at home from working from home. I'm glad to be back working from home now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Glad everyone's with us. And just to remind you, if you're uh, if you're on social media, feel free to follow along uh, using our hashtag local zero or find us on Twitter at energyrev underscore UK. So it's 2021, a new year, and I'm hoping we'll have some first time listeners uh, tuning in given the interview with Chris Stark, given who he is and his leading role with the Committee on Climate Change. So it's worth us doing a quick recap for anybody new who are dialing in and trying to understand a little bit more about what this podcast is. So what do we need to tell people? Well, first of all, we're all climate change and energy researchers from uh, Glasgow's University of Strathclyde, and we're part of the Energy Rev Research Consortium, which is a UK-wide group of researchers looking at how smart local energy can help play a role in um, delivering the UK's net zero target. So we're here to explore all the issues around climate change, to hear from the UK's brightest minds working at the cutting edge of these issues. We're going to steer away from the hang ringing and the doom and gloom, and we're always looking for the positive pathway forward, the innovations and the routes to success. 
And Beck, it's probably worth just recapping some of the episodes we covered. Yes, we've had four great episodes already, haven't we, Matt? The first one, we talked to three fantastic guests about the road to COP26, what it meant, where we were going and what we needed to focus on. And we followed that up in episode two by looking at what COVID has taught us about what net zero might look like. And Polly Billington and Jim Watson were fantastic guests that really gave us great insight, both from the research side of things, as well as, you know, what it meant for people at the sharp end of delivering stuff on the ground. Our third episode then focused in on Glasgow, and we looked at what Glasgow is trying to do in the run-up to COP26 and beyond to become one of the first climate-neutral cities in the UK. And our fourth episode just before Christmas was looking at fuel poverty and how we can make sure that no one is left behind in the transition to net zero. So this episode really builds on that great content that's gone before. And if you haven't already listened to them, please do go back and listen, subscribe, and you'll be able to get alerts for when the new episodes come out. And we're going to be running these pods every fortnight all the way up to COP26 in November 2021, when the United Nations have their climate change conference in Glasgow. So let's jump into today's show, which has a different feel to our usual episodes. We've got just one guest, Chris Stark, and we're going to spend the whole episode speaking with him about who he is, what he does, why it's important, and what's on his to-do list for 2021. So Chris Stark is the CEO of the UK's Climate Change Committee, an independent statutory body established under the Climate Change Act 2008. Their purpose is to advise the UK and devolved governments on their emissions targets and to report to Parliament on progress made in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, crucially, for preparing the UK to deliver on its net zero goals and adapting to the impacts of climate change. So we're absolutely thrilled to have Chris along today and to hear a little bit more about what they're doing and why. So uh, first things first, how was your Christmas break? Uh, Christmas was just lovely. So I properly took a break. Last year was just crazy for us and particularly the the end of the year uh, when we produced the sixth carbon budget. So it was really nice to have two weeks two weeks off. And uh, I've just been with my two kids and my long-suffering wife, and we've been locked away in the West End of Glasgow. And uh, it's been great. Feet up, mince pies. I'm sure you've... Uh... <laughs> Put on a stone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, you know, it's tradition to have some New Year's resolutions. So we've got 2021. What are yours? My personal resolution is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more active. I've spent the last six months planted in front of a, a desk with this strange experience that I think many others have been having of, of losing the sense of what the workday and home life division is. So it just it's just all melded into one. My main resolution this year, since we're staring down the barrel of another few months at least of this type of work, is that I'm going to be more conditioned in the way that I approach work and, and life and get out a bit more. Okay. But I've got a whole set of things that we need to do with the CCC this year, which is just fascinating. It's going to be a really interesting year for us, I think. So tell us a bit more about your uh, your kind of hopes and dreams for, for the CCC this year. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's just so much to talk about. I mean, we've just come off a, a whole package of work, really, which, is, which you could trace back to about three years ago. So all the work that we've been doing on net zero came to a head in the in the work for the sixth carbon budget. So over the last three years, what we've done is uh, work towards getting the commission to advise on a new target for the UK and for Scotland and for Wales and hopefully in due course for Northern Ireland. 
get that commission first, then do the analysis on what the right target was and the underpinnings for that in the net zero report, and then work on to the question of, which is far more interesting, how you actually deliver that. So that was what the sixth carbon budget was all about, really. It was looking at the path to achieving net zero and the steps that need to be in place to meet it. So that's that feels like the culmination of three years of work. Now, we've got one big a further piece of strategic work to do next or this year now, the, the year coming, which is on adaptation and on climate risk. So every five years, we do a piece of work looking at the climate risks that the UK faces. So we're switching to the priority of looking at the climate risks and how well adapted we are to them. And that will be the last major piece of strategic advice that we offer probably for a while. So the other thing that runs alongside all of this, we're working towards developing the, the CCRA3, as it's known, third climate change risk assessment. That will come in the summer. But alongside all of that, what we now need to do, I think, is switch towards being better at advising on delivery. So that's a, that's a big challenge for us. So we've been very good at setting out the things that need to be done. Uh, and we have been looking at the delivery issues, but we need to look at them more closely. So the, the question of how you actually deliver them in practice is something I'm really, really interested in, something we might want to talk more about. And with that, there's another aspect to our work, which I think has not been um, the priority and now needs to be, and that's the scrutiny powers that we have and the scrutiny requirement to look at what especially central government is doing to deliver these new statutory targets that are that are set in stone. So, so that's the process for this year is to, is to do that really important work on climate change adaptation and risk, then develop the scrutiny and delivery programs of work that we need to, to, to then become the expert in those things over the course of this year and beyond. And then there's a little matter of COP26 happening at the end of this year. <laughs> and I want to be as helpful as possible in that process as the as the UK's climate gurus. Of, of course, Chris. And, uh, and uh, you, you live in Glasgow, right? Yeah, I'm in the west end of Glasgow right now. Yeah, You're just around the corner. So, of course, this is happening on your doorstep. Um, and, mm. you know, it must be of great pride for you that, you know, this is coming to, to your hometown. What are your hopes for what the CCC can do in terms of shaping the action that the UK takes there? So it's an interesting question, this, isn't it? Because if you look at the piece of legislation that set us up, that's the Climate Change Act, it's very clear that what we're here to do is to give advice. So we are here to stand alongside the government, not, not specifically, not certainly not in the legislation to, to work with the government. But I, I do think we need to interpret our role slightly in a more broadly, broadly than that, because I think the work that we've been doing over the last three years and the work that will continue this year with climate change adaptation is, is a bit more than was envisaged, I think, by the Climate Change Act. We have a thing here that is useful to the government in the work that they, they are required to do by that same piece of legislation. So, so I want to do a bit more than just be the advisors. I think we have a stake in seeing the things that we are advising on delivered. That doesn't mean that it's our job to get them delivered, but I do think it's our job to make sure that we provide that analysis, that data, the numbers in a way that is as useful as possible to the people who have to make the policies and then the people that then deliver them. And that takes us into a whole new world of people outside of government who actually need to deliver this stuff in business and, uh, and of course, real people living in communities across the UK. So I think that means for the CCC, we've got to broaden our role, but I think about how we reach out to those people in different ways. I want to be as useful as we can whilst maintaining the, the idea of an independent body that does the scrutiny for parliament as well. So it's it's not an easy task to kind of flip, flip between these rules, but I think that's what we need to do. Sounds like you've got a lot of uh, work on your hands coming up, but very, very exciting. So just 
taking us back, some of our listeners might not have had a deep look at the sixth carbon budget and some might not even know what we're talking about at all. So can you just break this down for us a little bit, coming back to the, some of the big work you've done recently and talk to us about where we're at so far on the road to no, net zero, if you think that's, um, are we being ambitious enough? And what's, what have we got to come? What do we still need to do? Again, so much to talk about here. So I think we we are we are in the midst of something pretty remarkable at the moment in terms of the scaling up that's necessary for us to reach this new target that's been set. Are we doing enough was a question you asked, Becky, and the answer to that is no. Can we get to the target? Absolutely. Could we even do it? Could we do it earlier? I think we possibly could. So there's a kind of we're in the middle of a period when a lot of this will be resolved, I think. The the goal of setting net zero was the task last year and the year before. And then the task at the tail end of 2020 was to build on all that work in this piece of work that we do every five years uh, and to advise on the, the next set of interim targets across the UK that we think were necessary for the UK to reach that, that net zero goal overall. And that was, that was a really interesting piece of work. That was, that was what we call the sixth carbon budget. Sixth carbon budget takes us the period 2033 to 37. It's the critical period, really, if you're standing in 2021 looking forward, because it's the target for emissions in the mid-2030s. It's the first of those interim targets, the carbon budgets that's been set since the long-term goal was set. It's also, therefore, the most important. And it's probably the most important ever of all of the carbon budgets, because the one after that is going to be pretty close to the, the eventual statutory goal. So you're, you're, you're into the 2040s by that point. So... Our view in the CCC was we better throw everything at this. So we better make sure that we have as deep an understanding as we can build of what needs to happen over the next 30 years across the UK if we're to meet that 2050 net zero goal that the UK has. Uh, the Scottish target is an, an early one, 2045 target, but that's consistent with the UK goal. So we're really talking about a 30-year strategy here, and that's what we looked at here. So we, we interpreted our role more broadly. We looked at the path to net zero overall, we built a completely new assessment bottom up in each of the sectors of the economy on how you can cut emissions. The other thing that we really leaned on here was this idea that actually, if you look over 30 years, we're really staring down the barrel now of some really key decisions that need to be taken now. You've got assets being used today, assets that will be purchased tomorrow that will potentially be in use in 2050. So you've got, you know, you've potentially got this set of asset cycles, replacements. That you've got to get so right. So tell us about some of those assets. So, what sort of assets are we talking about here? So, so we're talking about everything, actually. So we're talking about turning over the whole capital stock of an economy. But the crucial things are the things that we use to travel around, the things that we use to heat ourselves, the things that we use to generate electricity and to, and to move that electricity around and, and get it to, to homes and businesses across the UK. I could go on. But these things tend to have quite long asset lives. Actually, if you look across the average of them, it's between 15 and 20 years. And if you don't get the policies right, then at the point when those assets are replaced, you make a decision that will make it much harder potentially to reach net zero by 2050. So what we were looking at in the sixth carbon budget was by what date have you got to make, reach a certain position? By what date have you got to be ready to replace a high carbon asset with a low carbon asset so that you meet the 2050 goal on time? Some of those dates are pretty close. So it's really good that we have a, a you know a prime ministerial 10 point plan that talks about phasing out sales of petrol and diesel cars by 2030 because if we don't have that then we're not going to make the date by 2050 
Similarly, gas boilers, which is the thing that every newspaper in the land wants to talk about whenever we talk about climate change. 2035 is probably the latest possible date for that phasing out of, of new sales. So therefore, you've got to build up to that. And that means you've got to have a strategy in place over the next decade. That's two parliaments to get to the point when you're ready for people to start en masse replacing uh, high carbon boilers with something low carbon. And we're not at the races on that yet. So, so you can, we could talk about, talk about this for hours, but you know, right, you look right across the economy, you see these imminent dates coming up and policy's got to be framed around them. What are the decisions that need to be made today with regards to that, that transformation of asset stock? And which do we maybe have a little bit more time to make you know, decisive calls on? So the glib answer to that is we don't have any time. We need to have decisions now. But actually, I, I don't think that's the right thing to say. I think there is some time still to make plans. We could have been doing with those plans much sooner than now, of course. But given that we've, we're in a position now, we we're actually we're scaling up the policy making right across government, not just in Whitehall, but in local authorities and in devolved governments as well. There is policy being developed now, even in the midst of a pandemic. So this is the point to do the, the strategic planning properly, I think. And working back from that net zero goal, what we really need is a well-coordinated set of strategies across the economy. I think we have that more or less in the power sector now. What we don't have is a set of really well-worked-through policies for industry. We don't have them for heat decarbonisation, the thing we've been talking about. And with that, we haven't got energy efficiency and, and buildings policy in the right place either. Um, there's also the natural environment where you're right up against the timesters because it takes time to grow a tree. So you need to have a strategy in place now if you want that to be part of the part of the solution by 2050. So all those things come together. I think we have this parliament to get those strategies right. That means doing the right consultation, doing the strategic planning, putting the policies in place, putting those strategies in place. Broadly, just talking mainly about Whitehall here, that's what's planned. So you've got a whole set of strategic policy statements coming out in the next few years it helps that we have the COP in Glasgow at the end of this year because that's keeping everyone honest. If those things come together well, then you've got the remainder of the 2020s to start the process of kind of scaling up the delivery of against those strategic policies so that by the time you get to 2030, thereabouts, we're at the point then where investments are zero carbon. So new, new asset replacements, new purchases are zero carbon. There is no real barrier to reaching net zero in technical terms. We, we know all the things that we need to do. We've got enough options in front of us that we can be very confident, I think, that we'll get to net zero. We're very confident, too, that the cost won't be, won't be very high if there is any cost at all to the, to the whole economy. That's not the same you know, on an individual consumer basis, but the overall cost will be low, too. That's, that's remarkable. We shouldn't just step away from it without banking that. That's an amazing thing that we've managed to, to demonstrate. What we don't have, though, we look at that heat question. It's, it, I think it's the most interesting one because we've always known about the technologies that would decarbonize heat. We've always known about the things that could be done. We just haven't been doing them. And I think what we've been lacking is a framework through which we plan. So I'm not talking here about regulations. I'm not talking about laws to do things. I'm talking about a process that brings people together to make those decisions properly. So one of the big steps forward in our most recent piece of work was to say actually, Let's stop talking uh, about the technology decisions so much. Let's let instead look at the process of the planning that needs to be done, and especially at local area and regional level. How do you bring people together to start making those decisions? And here I'll bring in the other piece of work that I was involved in last year, which was on the UK's um, Climate Assembly, the Citizens Assembly that was formed last year. And it was a really wonderful thing to have been involved with. And, and you know, they looked at the same things 
And broadly, what we heard from the Climate Assembly was, look, there are lots of options here. We accept that those options are, are, are valid and, we, and we're happy to, to pursue any of them. But what we want is a stake in the decision. So we want, to, we want to understand what those things are. We want to be informed about it. And then we want to be involved in the process of making the decisions locally. And I think that points to the need for that, that kind of process to be in place before you can, before you can get on and do it. So, I, yes, it would be great. It's easy for me to say, yeah, let's just get everything done now. You know, all those decisions have to be taken now. But actually, there's a process of consent that needs to come before that. That is something that I think that has been notably absent from some of these big transitions that we're talking about. That's a very important point, Chris, you raise is that it's not just about making a choice. It's about putting in place the foundations to make the right choice and a choice which is delivered and driven by citizens. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I take that. Absolutely. Thank you. But do we need to go beyond that? And and I think if we look at uh, the news that we often see around the, the great steps that have been made in the power sector, a lot of that has been largely invisible to people that are living in their homes. So I still do everything very much the same, even though my power might be a lot more renewable now than it was, say, five years ago. The changes that we're now talking about, we've talked a lot about heating, but you mentioned earlier how we how we move around. I've got a, um, I don't know, a 10-year-old Vauxhall Corsa on my driveway that costs about a grand to buy. I'm not getting an EV for that. There's just no way. So the changes that we're about to see and the changes that we're going to have to embark on are going to be much more invasive into our everyday lives. They're going to require much more, I guess, commitment across all parts of society. So how do you see that unfolding? And do you see any real challenges there, particularly around the costs of some of these new technologies, or if not the upfront costs, the costs to run them and the ongoing implications of how that might play out. So, I mean, we're right at the heart of the matter now. I think, I'm not, first, I'm going to disagree with the premise of your question slightly. I'm not sure it needs to be invasive. And I think that's a that's a, another one of these prior questions that we should really have a discussion about nationally. When you look at the world in 2050, let's assume that everything goes well and we get there by 2050 at the latest. We've made we're in this kind of net zero world. I don't think it's that different from the world we have in 2021. You know, we're still traveling around on roads, just that the vehicles on those roads are plugged in rather than filled at a petrol station. If you really pry open that, you, you, it makes much more sense to have a vehicle that you plug in rather than visiting a you know petrol station somewhere else to fill it up once in a while. So, you know, th th that, that kind of step is indeed a big step. But it, I don't think it needs to be, a, you need to worry about it. it. We'll still have warm homes, but the technology that's warming it will be something I hope that is not fossil fueled. So again, I think thinking of it in that way, you can work back from that to say, well, okay, and if that's the case, what are the key, uh, key issues here? I don't think cost is the issue. Cost overall to the economy looks pretty low especially if you're able to transfer some of the benefits of the transition from one sector to another. So that transition from from, from petrol and diesel cars to electric vehicles is one that we think will be cost-saving to the economy, quite significantly cost-saving. Now, it's not beyond the, the wit of policymakers to look at that transition now and say, well, actually, let's bank some of those savings and start to pay for some of the more costly transitions in industry, for example, or in that heat question that we've talked about a few times already, make that cheaper. And then you get this effect happening when you have these mass rollouts of technologies, which is very commonly understood about the fact that it will be it will make those unit the unit price of those technologies cheaper. That's one of the things that we're looking we are being conservative about that for the electric vehicle transition. But I, I expect that to happen in electric vehicles. I expect that to happen in industry. I expect that to happen in low carbon heat installations as well. So I think you start on this process with some confidence that 
actually it's not going to be invasive it's not going to be that difficult but it does involve change and for me that's the that this is where we come to the consent question is that we've got to be honest about the changes that are coming and present them in as positive a way as we can whilst acknowledging that they are changes these are going to be changes to people's lives that i don't think are going to be that difficult but we've got to also present the worthwhile reason for doing it it's not just about climate change you know there's all sorts of good reasons to do it surely there will be some pain for the gain and uh, you know i think often uh, i was asked this question the other day you know thinking forward 2050 what are going to be the, the hardest choices for mr and mrs jones at 32 acacia avenue in their semi-detached with two uh, two cars uh 2.4 children what's going to be the toughest decision that they personally need to make um, I don't know the short answer, but I, I accept that there is there is going to be a, a transitional cost, which some people may experience as you know a more difficulty. But but I don't think it's. I think that's overstated. I mean, you're probably hearing that in my answers to these things. I think that probably the biggest single difference is that we're not going to be using natural gas to heat homes, so that's going to involve some form of intervention in the home. Again, I I don't think that the alternatives are, are going to be that challenging i think we've got to got to work out what the plan is i'm in glasgow right now i mean this is probably a good place to do a district heating network i'm right next to glasgow university where there's already one in the ground so you know that kind of change for me involves moving away from a gas boiler to some sort of heat exchanger for a district heating network in a road in the end is that going to is that a huge burden on me probably not but it is a change the question about who pays for it is probably the hardest thing Again, I'll go back to my early point that the overall cost of this thing now looks really low if there's any cost at all, and that's at the economy level, so at the aggregate level. The challenge for policymakers is how to spread that cost out fairly and to do so in such a way that you don't expose those consumers, either businesses or individuals who are vulnerable, to costs that they can't afford. So that may involve people who can afford costs paying more. It shouldn't, in my view, involve people who can't afford uh, those costs, um, having to pay things that they wouldn't otherwise have to do. And that's that's the policy challenge for me. It's not about meeting an overall cost any longer, because that's so small. It's about spreading it out in such a way that it, it, you achieve that fair outcome. So if we're trying to avoid then, Chris, and I'm completely on board with where you are with it, but if we're trying to avoid the people who are worst placed to afford those costs, how do we effectively bring them along on the transition with us? How do we ensure that they not only don't incur the costs, but maybe reap some of the, the benefits of the transition as well? Yeah, so this is a brilliant question. So for me, the, the set of issues that, that are often not addressed by people like me doing these kind of assessments are the things I think that will really matter. So there's the questions about convenience. There's big, big, big questions, probably the most important question about where are the jobs in this transition going to come from? Uh, if you can frame those up, then I think the question of fairness blossoms. It opens right out into a whole different things that are not just about cost-benefit assessments. Let's just have that conversation. <laughs> Let's not make decisions on behalf of people without having had that discussion. I mean, I, that's the bit that I feel hasn't, we haven't really begun to have that discussion. In the work that we've been doing recently, we've started to unpick some of those stories so the one about jobs is the one I'll just can return to if I can. So we know that there will be, although the overall costs of the economy are low, that masks a massive transition, a massive, huge amount of investment that's taking place as well. There are lots of new jobs in that transition, but there are also sectors that are shrinking, notably the oil and gas sector. Unless we're honest about that, then that's going to be really painful. 
And if we are honest about what's coming next, then we can start the process early of transitioning people from those high carbon jobs to low carbon jobs. We know that if you do that early, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to move someone from a job they're in into a new job than it is to wait till they're unemployed. This should be a positive discussion. Those jobs happen to be high, you know, high, more highly skilled than many other jobs. So you can expect that those people who are making installations for energy efficiency improvements, uh, low carbon heating installations, uh, can move into other jobs after that. So this is a really sensible thing to do. And I think although there is a cost to those things, that people are more willing to, uh, to, to, to permit that cost and indeed to pay for it if they can see the positive benefits that come from that. And they're not all about climate. There's a whole set of things here that I would like to see presented in a more, if I can put it this way, social um, wrapper that I think would build the consent for those changes much more readily than just you know how quickly you can cut emissions. Okay, so the title of the show, Local Zero, we're trying to bring everything back to that local dimension. So whether it's the individual, the home, the community. And what you've just said there, Chris, is is really, um, really relevant, I think, to the, the DNA of this show. Trying to understand what those local benefits are, and we may look at jobs there, or whether it's a sense of place and culture, whether it's it, you know, this, this wide spectrum of, of benefits that could be attached to this net zero. How important is it to plan locally to say, this is what Aberdeen or this is what Birmingham, this is what uh, Stevenage might look like in 2030, 2040, 2050? Well, it's, I mean, how else could I answer that question except to say that it's essential? But I mean, I, it's maybe worth saying why I think that. I mean, I think it's 308 of the 408 local authorities across the UK have declared climate emergencies. More than half of them have net zero goals of 2030. So something is happening locally which complements or should complement the, the kind of national changes that are that are now in law. We reckon local authorities have powers over about a third of the emission reductions that that are necessary to reach net zero. So if you frame that a different way, if we don't involve them in a coherent way in the national strategy for getting to net zero, you will not make net zero. And you know those housing and building powers, the kind of the enforcement powers that are there and the the policy setting powers that, that local authorities have. These are absolutely critical ways of, of building stronger local consent for the changes. And crucially, I think improving those changes too. Everything's got to be tailored to the local resources and local uh, infrastructure if it's going to work. So what do you think local authorities might need um, to support that? Or, or put another way, what does local government need to do to support those local authorities? Because, you know, we've heard, um, particularly in previous episodes, how local authorities are really struggling with budget cuts over the years, facing all sorts of challenges, particularly with COVID at the moment. So what needs to happen to empower local authorities and not just the ones that are already kind of coming along, but all local authorities to ensure we can build that up evenly across the country in a fair way? Yeah, so there's a, a set of things. And, and if, if any of your listeners are interested in this, we published a document alongside the sixth carbon budget, which because we had so much that came out at the end of the year, I don't think it got nearly enough focus. And we'll, we'll give it a boost, I think, this year. But it's, it's an excellent report, Chris. Oh, thanks, and we'll, we'll def definitely tether it to the, the pod when we put it out. Yeah, it's really good. Good, good. So I do have a look at that. And it's it's um, it's um about 100 pages or so. And it sets out a, lo a lot of the, the answers to the question that you've just asked me, Becky. I mean, I, and crucially, it doesn't it doesn't try to close down the discussion at all i think much of what we're talking about is 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 how you open up the question of what we do next so at the heart of what we were saying is that they should be we should be seeing that local authorities as enablers not as barriers or as some sort of annoyance on the journey that's that's really crucial in making this work 
But capacity is really patchy. If you look across the local authorities the UK has, there is no go-to resource. If you're in a local authority for information on what to do about net zero or climate change itself, because of that, far too many consultants get hired. So, you know, that lots of duplication of effort, lots of different tools being used by those local authorities and no common reporting, which is absolutely critical. So we need to turn that situation into something that's better coordinated, something that looks like a more of a national delivery plan that involves those local agents properly. And at the heart of it, it's not just about funding, although I think that is an issue itself. It's mainly about developing the framework for doing all of that. So, so we have a plan for local authorities for how they can be involved in delivery, using their powers properly. And also we bring them into the discussion of how they can actually bring local actors into the decision-making process. So that's, that's, you know, that's been the big lesson for me, at least from the, from the Citizens' Assembly, is how can we structure a discussion, locale by locale again, that brings in the question of transport, jobs, housing, uh, economic development, in a way that is seen as positive rather than as something that's been forced down from, from Whitehall or indeed from anywhere else. In terms of the, the local actors, Chris, I think from the local authority report, and Matt highlighted this when we were having a kick about earlier as well, is that it felt like uh, community groups who are often at the forefront of innovation, especially when it comes to energy, who are particularly good at operating in their locale and getting out to more disadvantaged areas, it felt like there wasn't very much reference to those groups within the report itself do you see them as potentially having an important role going forward as well yeah i mean it's worth saying that that report was focused on local authorities so the recommendations we had are for central government and for and for local government but that doesn't exclude all the other people who will, be, who will matter here so the community groups the people who are actually at the coalface dealing with many of the issues that we've already talked about of course they're critical but th those conditions will be different right across the across the country. I can tell you from experience how different it is moving from Scotland to London, for example. So 2021 is going to be a, a very big year, especially for the UK and Glasgow with, with COP26 happening later. And in fact, in our very first episode, we heard that COP26 could well be the most important COP of all time in terms of setting future direction. So we've talked a little bit about uh, the CCC's priorities for this year. What do you think the UK at large really needs to focus on ahead of COP26? What are the key actions for the next nine months or so? So I think it probably is the most important COP for a while, at least. It remains to be seen whether it's the most important COP ever, but it could be. Let's just step back and, uh, and just think about what it's got to do. So as we're talking today, it's, I think it's 300 days or thereabouts until we actually have the COP. So it's kind of nice. The countdown is really, really beginning now properly. By the time we get to the COP, that goal of net zero is, I think, going to be the binding thing that sits through all of the things that the COP is trying to pull off. Now, it's funny to say that because we've, we've, we've accommodated it now so much into the discussion that I think we forget that a few years back we weren't talking about net zero in that way. So I think that will be the first achievement for this COP is that net zero is a, a binding goal, well understood the science of it, uh, the need for it, and it's and and here's the second point here that, that that that's a goal for national governments, of course, but it's also a goal in civic society too, in particular in the business community. So I think one of the big things that the COP may pull off this year is something that goes alongside those national commitments, the things that the COP process are designed to generate, which demonstrates how 
particularly multinationals, but not just multinationals, the business community more generally, how they can play a role in achieving net zero too. Many of those commitments, especially if they're from high carbon producing companies, can be really meaningful, more so than even groups of large large economies potentially. So, you know, that's I think that will be a big story. The second thing I hope we, we get to is, is that we, we step away from just discussing net zero and talk more about the near term. It is not to be dismissed how important it is that the UK was willing to set an ambitious uh, NDC, as we call it, the 2030 goal for, um, for emissions reduction. We advise that it should be a 68% reduction on, 98, on 1990 levels, which is a very significant increase in where we were in our national commitments prior to that. Now, it's hugely important that the UK, as uh, president of the COP this year, is willing to make that kind of commitment. It helped, I think, get the EU commitment over the line it will help focus on what needs to happen over the next decade beyond these net zero goals in the long term so that we, we have a path to net zero that is compliant with the Paris Agreement temperature goals. One of the really, one of the really interesting questions that I'm occasionally asked is, what, you know, what, would, we, what would, be, would a successful COP be? And I think the only answer that you can give to that question is that a successful COP is one that people leave saying it was successful. That was what was done in Paris. You know, you could you could really, if you were being super critical of the Paris Agreement, you could say, well, it was only a set of temperature goals and, and not and not too much more. But people left feeling empowered and and uh, and optimistic about that. So that's that's a big goal for for the UK uh, in hosting the COP. It's one of the reasons why I'm very glad it's been hosted in Glasgow. We are quite good at these at these jamborees when they come along. So Glasgow is a good place to to host it. it. Certainly is, Chris. And I think think on that. We both live, well, four of us live in Glasgow now. I'm very excited about it being here. More excited than I think I've possibly been about anything before. Uh, and, and we really, fingers and toes crossed, that it does happen here next year, COVID, COVID permitting. What are your hopes and dreams for Glasgow after this? And there was much talk after the Commonwealth Games about legacy, ditto um, for the 2012 Olympics in, in London. Do you think this could have a lasting change on Glasgow's identity in Scotland more broadly? Well, I certainly hope it does. I don't know if it will. What I would love to see, I mean, you asked about hopes and dreams. So my principal hope and dream is that Glasgow does what it does so well and, and hosts a brilliant conference, which is seen as a celebration, I hope. And Glasgow's excellent at that stuff. We, we seem to do that fairly regularly along the way. We need these kind of intravenous cultural injections occasionally in Glasgow. So we have these kind of big moments where Glasgow does it really well. So it needs to do that principally. And I think I'm confident that will happen. What I'd love to see happen, though, is that legacy of lasting strategic commitments. The biggest of those clearly is on heat. So let's have a plan for decarbonized heat in Glasgow. That means something because we're going to need one that is fundamentally tailored to the needs of Glasgow anyway. It's an unusual city, so we are. You know, there's, I'm looking at. I'm in a. I'm in a Glasgow tenement today. That type of building you will not find in other cities around the UK or Europe. So we're going to need that kind of tailored plan in any case. So let's, let's make that plan, make those kind of commitments, and alongside it, let's have the the transport and the employment commitments that go with that. So that Glasgow is pointing itself towards a genuinely low carbon future. That for me will be the secret of a COP success because the the reason for having the COP in Glasgow isn't just that we can host it. Um, well, is that there's a nice narrative for that. We are the high carbon city that became, I hope, the low carbon, the, a low carbon city in the future. So, in this used to be the cradle of the of of industry globally. You know where all the ships were made, founded on coal, 
let's have a lovely story of moving away from that to zero carbon future. And that kind of plan is within our gift. And even if there are 300 days to the cult, there's time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great vision. I should also probably slightly edit my response before because I know my wife listens to this. Birth of children, number one. <laughs> wedding, number two. COP26, number three, in terms of most exciting things ever. Just want to get that in there. A damning okay. indictment <laughs> of your priorities. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I think the last question, in the spirit of this podcast, we're trying our best to give people sort of tangible things that can practically help people help towards the, the effort towards net zero. If you had to gun to your head, Chris, three things that you could recommend, changes that we can make or things that we should support and um, that can get us there quicker, what would what would those be? So, I mean, if we're talking about individual change, again, this is probably the other question that comes up most often. And, and the reason this question comes up is, I think, because people want to know what they can do. And many of people who ask that question, I mean, I'm not talking about journalists or podcasters, I'm normal people. <laughs> um Many of them feel they are not empowered to do anything about it. And I think that's terrible. So there are there are lots of things that you can do. And, and there's kind of a long list of things. But if I could just pick out a few. If you're feeling like you want to do something about it, then think about how you travel and what you eat, obviously. They are the most obvious things to do. The third one I'll think about, the, the, the third one that's worth discussing is what you are invested in. You might not think you have any investments, but you know if you've got a pension, that's another biggie. It's quite interesting how often a pension fund is is motivated to change its own investment strategy by by those um, pension holders. So you know, that kind of changes the other thing that you can go along with it. But the first two are the most important. What you eat is remarkably important in terms of your overall car- carbon footprint. I've given up red meat since doing this job. I didn't eat very much of it to begin with, but I don't I don't eat it at all anymore. And I'm almost pescatarian, although I occasionally I, I ate my Christmas dinner, so I, I, I did eat I did eat a bird for that. But um, that matters. And then transport's the other biggie. I am this week giving up my diesel car. So this is the, I'm handing it back. So that that will be a big step forward for us. It's not, not a difficult decision in the end for me. We're not going to replace it at all for the time being because um, we don't use it at the moment. And especially in these lockdown times, I feel, I feel like my world has shrunk. But um, making decisions, the next, the next car that you own is a, is a, another good thing to think about. And walking and cycling. Just, just on the diesel thing, the, yeah, the diesel things, Chris. I think this is one thing that I constantly hear from friends and family. They said, "Oh, I bought a diesel because it was meant to be an environmentally friendly thing to do." And yeah. I'm now being told not. I think there's a there's you know there's a there's a useful lesson there for us in terms of communicating with the public going forward. There is, although I think the people who made those proclamations were doing so for the right reasons. So I mean, I, I, I actually, this is one of those policy changes that we've thought about a lot in the CCC as well that. We were not speaking in the times when everyone was being urged to buy a diesel on the basis of the full data. And um, there's a big lesson in that about making sure that you've got all the all the information that you need to make those kind of very clear um, pronouncements. I really feel we do now for the electric vehicle transition. We've got everything lined up well now. I think the, the, the fact that the Prime Minister has committed to 2030 as the phase-out date is really important. It will drive change. And I think it is the right decision. We can be confident about that. Uh, that wasn't the case for the diesel transition, and it has. It, you're right. It's absolutely damaged the. Um, it's damaged the status of those kind of changes, and we've got to rebuild that trust. I was very, uh, very glad to hear you mention it also, Chris, about what you eat. So I've been a vegan for some time, partly by choice, and then partly just by foods that I'm allergic to. And I never thought I would see the day when um, energy 
news had an article about meat eaters versus veganism, which I saw this morning, um, putting, to get, putting together the figures that meat eaters have about twice as large carbon footprint as people who eat a plant-based diet. Yeah. And, and we, oh God, we've done, we've done three reports now where we've looked really closely at the diet question tied obviously to the land use question and on each occasion we've tried to respond to the criticism we've had from the last report about not having looked at one aspect of it and it's often some of the agricultural voices are often very strong on this you know that we, and they're very clear that we've missed something or that you know we haven't got the soil carbon analysis right and each time we look at it and we conclude really clearly that there is a there is an issue with livestock that we will not address unless diets change we're not talking about everyone becoming a vegan it is about eating a little less, and if you're going to do that, then eating higher quality meat, which tends to be produced locally. And actually, that's quite a nice story, potentially, for agriculture in this country if we get that right. So, yes, change your diet, but you don't need to be a vegan. And Becky, I respect your desire to wish to be so, but and uh, you know, I'm not a vegan. Uh, my wife was a vegan for a long time, and and is now a fish eater. Actually, she's come, she's she's gone the other way, but. But you don't need to be a vegan, but it, it is better to eat less red meat. And that's also a health issue, too. So much of the red meat that we eat is processed. That bit of meat that's processed, 80% of our diet, of if you're a meat eater, is the bit that is least resistant to change. So that's another thing to think about. That, that we've Over time, we have cut our consumption of meat, but our processed meat consumption has remained largely the same over that period. So that there is a quite a big shift ahead, potentially, if we're to move towards that eat a little less, eat a higher quality meat diet that um, that would be more compatible with net zero. So Chris, I also have to say you have a brilliant capacity to uh, to bring all of this into a very <laughs> positive light. And you've made me feel a lot more excited that we can achieve things uh, that I might not have been otherwise. But sort of in this big challenge that we are facing, and given that you are the voice on a lot of the UK's efforts on climate change, or at least kind of the face of the CCC, what What's keeping you awake at night? What are you most anxious about in this journey to address climate change? So let's dwell briefly on the on the positive bit. So we've got we've got so much going right at the moment if you're a policy wonk like me. So you've got targets that are now set, we think, in line with the science. We've got real momentum in government to building policies that will address those targets. You've got the COP, which is genuinely important in keeping all of that on the road. You've now got the, you know, the finalization of, and it's finalization rather than full development of a whole set of policy strategies across the piece that will help inform all of that. And I'll make this point specifically, you've got a treasury that are really interested now in the topic. So if you're in the policy space, as I am, and as you are, this is a good moment. You know, the treasury in particular, who really come around the kind of the curve on this, are now actively you know, championing decarbonisation in a way that they weren't before. And they're not, they're not viewing it as a cost to the economy now as that needs to be managed, more as a fundamental of the economy over the transition ahead. So that all of that's really, really great. But what keeps me awake at night, if I can put it that way, is that that's built on sand. There's still a lot of potential for that to go wrong. And if that's to happen, I desperately hope that it doesn't, then I worry a lot about this becoming part of the culture wars, that it becomes, as I think it has in the US, a discussion only on the left, or its or aspects of it are captured by the right and the left. The kind of hallmark of this UK success in addressing climate change to date, and we can all agree we haven't done enough, but, but we have been doing more than other countries, more than other developed economies. 
the hallmark of that success is that it hasn't been captured in that way. That Yes, there is a debate about how to reach these targets, how to address climate change. But the debate isn't about whether to do it. It's, it's the question of you know, whether you do more state-led action or less. You know, that kind of, you know, th 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 there is a political debate about, about reaching the target, not whether the target is there at all. And I worry about Nigel Farage and his love suddenly of criticising cycle lanes. So, you know, that sort of political discourse can turn quite quickly against these, to my mind, very sensible uh, steps, which are generally well supported because they're not captured by that political fight. I think that would be a disaster if we got into that kind of world where it was, it was really divisive again, sides were taken and we end up where it, you know, it's supported by one bit of the political spectrum and not the other because progress just gets harder then. And I think we, the CCC, have a big role in making sure that we, we kind of tread carefully there too and, and don't, don't fuel that kind of desire from Nigel Farage and others to, to make it a culture issue. Brilliant, Chris. Well, thank you very much for that indeed. Uh, we've put you through your paces. So you're listening to Local Zero. Uh, you can find us uh, using the hashtag Local Zero. You can also find us at energyrev underscore UK. Uh, if you've got any questions, any comments, any queries, please send them our way. We are delighted to have Chris Stark along after um, a marathon of questions. Chris, I don't know whether you've listened to any of the previous episodes before, but we, you're about to enjoy the game Future or Fiction. This is Fraser's creation. He's pretty guarded about it, uh, rightly proud. Um, every week it is Becky versus Matt, and this week uh, you have the honour of being our first guest player. Okay, so I will hand over to Fraser, who will explain the rules. Thank you very much for that, Matt. That was very professional. So what we do in this game, Chris, for the uninitiated, is I will present you with a technology that either I've invented in my head, I've just completely made it up, or it's something that I've read about recently, and in which case it's the future of technology. So the question is, is it the future, i.e. have I read about it in research, or have I completely pulled it out my backside? <laughs> this episode, my invention is called The Looking Glass. Researchers have developed effective, fully transparent solar panels that can be placed over windows, mobile phone screens, or even car windshields to generate power. Do we think it's the future, or do we think it's fiction? Uh, yeah, and, and I, I ought to warn you here, Chris, he's an extremely good liar, is Fraser, so just take, take that into account as well. Um, and you, you've got to phone a friend as well, ask the audience. Fraser, are we we talking about something that you can essentially like a film you can stick on a window? We're or... talking about a clear screen. I put more uh, more I envisage an architectural development rather than a purely energy technology development. Integrating solar generation in things like windows. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you, I'm aware that there is a there is the capacity to do that, and my understanding is it's not very efficient. So it doesn't. It's not nearly as efficient as um, 
uh, more traditional solar PV. I feel like I've read about this, but let's um, let's see the acid test. What was the name of it, Fraser, again? The Looking Glass. Well, see, I, d- I don't think that that name is exciting enough for you to have made it up. <laughs> so I'm going with... Yeah, they've yeah. normally got a bit more flourish to them if they're Fraser's. Yeah. Oh, it can't, it's impossible to give a straightforward answer to that. So I think it is, it is, it's not fictional, but I doubt it will be providing uh, the majority of the power that we need in the future. So I'll, I'll, I'll put it... I, I, through gritted teeth, I'll say fiction. Becky, do we have a verdict other than insulting my ability to name technologies? <laughs> I think it's the future. I mean, I agree that it probably won't be as efficient as other forms of solar generation, but I don't think that's the question you're asking here. You've you've tricked us on this these grounds before. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with future. Future and that too sticking with fiction, Chris Matt. I'm a past master and just being confident in my assertions, so I'm just gonna stick with fiction. <laughs> I think I'm with with Chris on this one. I, I, I mean, I, I teach this stuff occasionally. I know you've got sort of you know thin film technologies, got organic PV technologies. I think I have seen applications like this in the past, but I agree with Chris. You're not going to be able to milk much from the sun using this stuff, and that's why we probably don't see much of it about. There's something in your wording, Fraser. I can see it in your eyes as well. If you're about to pull something on us, but yeah, I'm, I'm future. That's interesting, Chris, because you accepted that the technology exists. The answer is... Future. The looking glass is the future. It's not called the looking glass. I did invent it, so it was still hurtful to my feelings, Becky. Thank you. (laughs) But researchers at the Michigan State University have devised just last year a fully transparent solar panel that, unlike previous attempts boasts a very high efficiency and high material quality. It uses organic molecules to absorb waves of light that are invisible to the human eye, which means that the material can be transparent. So right now, it's about six times more efficient than previous attempts, but Chris, you're absolutely right to say that it's still not entirely efficient. So they talk about it, when I say future, they talk about it as potential applications for architecture in maybe 10 years or so. I'm glad I was completely correct. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the first one I've got right so far, so I'm very pleased about that one. Thanks, Fraser. What a great future of fiction and uh, and a special thanks to Chris for such a, an exciting conversation and a little bit of positivity to start our 2021. One of the things Chris mentioned was the success of the citizens' assemblies. And we'll be following up on this next time when we talk more about the citizens' assemblies and the role of people in both creating and delivering that net zero future when we talk to Professor Rebecca Willis. If you want to follow us on social media, use the hashtag Local Zero and you'll find us at energyrev underscore UK to send us questions that you want answered and we'll get to them later in the series. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. See you soon. Goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.